1: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. Today's guest is former fashion journalist turned interiors blogger Paula Sutton. For 20 years, Paula lived a typical busy, 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 nine till nine London sort of life. But the birth of her third child made her question everything. Ditching her glamorous job, she and her husband and three kids decamped to rural Norfolk. There, jobless... Cashless and identityless, she began documenting the bootstrapped doing up of their new house on Instagram as Hill House Vintage. And that might have been that until Paula posted a picture of herself picnicking in her gorgeous garden and found
2: herself at the centre of a Twitter storm. Often, when you get a lot of followers, somebody's mentioned you. So then, well, they had, <laughs> and then I, I continued putting put shopping away, and I realised that it had gone up by ten thousand, then fifteen thousand, and then twenty thousand, and then what started off as oh, isn't this exciting and lovely, started turning into something's wrong here. I thought, oh, has Oprah Winfrey <laughs> yes, yes. mentioned me? You know, is there somebody really super famous who's mentioned yeah. me? My goodness, what, what is this? Suddenly, at Hill
1: House Vintage, had half a million followers and an enjoyable hobby had become a whole new career. Paula tells me about the Twitter storm that appended her life, being an older black woman in the public eye, kicking the curse of I used to be... Dot, 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 the rejuvenating power of dressing up and why age has been a liberation. Her new book, Hill House Living... The Art of Creating a Joyful Life is out now and it's very, very happy making
2: something that keeps coming up that I didn't think about myself but a lot of people said my images are sort of quite magical. I know there is a fantasy element to it because that's on purpose and I wanted the book cover to have that sort of magical fantasy about it. This is such a fashion thing to
1: say but it's like Tim Walker without the Tim Walker. Yes, yes. If you know what I mean. Absolutely and I'm very (laughs) inspired by Tim Walker. He brings like a darkness to it which you don't bring Mm -hmm.
2: but. It's a sort of crazy Alice in Wonderland Hmm. meets Mary Poppins meets sort of, you know, the sound of music and and I think a lot of that comes from, um, I'm also inspired by Hollywood musicals and all the things I used to watch when I was a kid and on a Sunday I I always remember sitting um, on the floor. My mother would be plaiting my hair and we'd have a, a Hollywood musical on the Sunday because there's only three channels. <laughs> and so I, in my younger years, I was sort of brought up on this feast of um, tap dancing and all singing and all, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I love it. And I've always um, harbored these um, fantasies of sort of breaking out into song and tap dancing. And, and it's wonderful because it with my Instagram. It's all so, so selfish. It's like I'm able to fulfill these sort of fantasies of suddenly I'll break out into tap dancing and... whatever, and I'm becoming bolder with it because you get more and more relaxed with what you're doing. It's so Mm. interesting, actually, because
1: so for the listeners, I'm going to describe your Mm. outfit, (laughs) which in fact anybody who looks at your Hill House Vintage Instagram Mm. will have seen you. I think I might have seen this outfit before. I get the most out of my clothes for sure. Right, a fabulous white Mm. puff sleeve Mm. blouse and the most gorgeous is it a designer skirt or is it made or
2: so much that i buy and that i find is through instagram and i love finding smaller sort of makers and designers and this is an italian lady and it's dado it's d-a-d-o i think oh, and beautiful. it's um, it's a
1: very full quite is it maxi or midi, midi it's sort probably, of like midi it? and Mid-axi. nice and high
2: nice and high-waisted I held you in yeah it's all very nice
1: And a bow. And it's like, actually, now you say it, do you think that when people are looking at your Instagram that they're seeing that kind of element of fantasy that you're
2: trying to get across? Or do you think sometimes they're taking it a bit seriously? Do you know, I I do worry about that quite often. And so what you'll see every few months, I put it in a post. I remind people that a lot of this is, it's a combination of fantasy and real because I do dress like this. This is not me pretending. And I do wear the bows in my hair and this is real. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the poses are, obviously they're exaggerated you know and I don't come out down the you stairs you don't come down the stairs going <laughs> <laughs> dancing do you know what sometimes I do I have to be... but you know a lot of it is tongue in cheek well most of it is tongue in cheek oh, they are so used to me now and to be honest they sing in the house more than I do and it's it's a very loud and noisy household and it's a very I wouldn't say theatrical because nobody's interacting but we have <laughs> funny voices and we have funny sayings and we repeat those um funny isms that you know all families do it I'm sure. Yeah. But um, you know, even Coco, you know, God bless her, she's not with us anymore. But Coco had a voice and I would speak with Coco's
1: voice. <laughs> Coco was your dog. Yes. 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 yes, just for people yes.
2: who don't know. Yes, Coco was a Labrador and Doberman cross. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Yeah, she absolutely Divine and was in so many of my photographs as well. She was like my partner in crime, and even in the photographs, I didn't want her in. She'd literally come along if she saw me picking up the phone or a camera. She'd come along and pose. And she gets a mention in the book dedication. She does, yeah, yeah. Well, she's in the book quite a bit, actually. So yes, you know, she had a voice, and we're that sort of family. So a lot of what I do, they're not surprised at all. You know, just mum, just mum doing her thing. Let's go back
1: a bit because you worked in the fashion industry for what twenty years? Twenty
2: years, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and so on.
1: Where you were bookings editor, which I've got to say is a nightmare of a job. Do you know?
2: You have to be so organised, which is really weird now because I'm not as organised as I used to be then, but I'm very good with other people. I can organise other people, you you know, hordes of other people, no problem. But when it comes to reaction to. um, and rebelling.
1: Yeah, rebelling (laughs) against years of. because, you know, it's not to say that. L stylists are any more difficult than any other fashion stylist, but organising shoots that lot back
2: in the day when people flew all over the world and with you absolutely. And I was um, unfortunately I was the budget girl, so I I had to make sure that that things stayed within budgets. And of course, every editor believes that their shoot is the most important, as they should. That's what a creative person does. You have to have self belief and believe that what you're doing is wonderful and magical and fantastic and the best. But when you're faced with that, you're having to to sort of curb people's sort of creativity and enthusiasm to a certain point because of budget, but you want them to do the best that they can. So it's an interesting job. I loved it. Gosh, don't get me wrong. I absolutely adored every second of it. The only thing was, is that it was all consuming. So you worked on Elle for
1: quite mm. a while. You mm. worked for Elite Models. Mm. I mean, it is not it isn't a big leap from there. To Hill House Mm. Vintage Tell Mm. me how You put it in the book From catwalk to dogwalk How did that happen? Because it is a big leap From that kind of Nine till nine South London Urban fashion High heels Life to your life now Which Mm. is fabulous
2: It's got to be said But different Fabulous Very different in rural. It's it's grown into something You've made it fabulous I've made it fabulous And and it's settled into something Mm. Where everything seems to have Joined up again But you know For a long time It wasn't like that As I say I loved my job I loved my career and it was my dream thing to do, working in fashion and being able to go to shows and be organising and helping something that came in the form of a magazine, a glossy magazine, was, you know, the ultimate dream. But when I was younger, thinking about all of that, I didn't think about what happens if you have kids and, you know, what happens at that stage in your life. I guess you shouldn't have to plan too far ahead. But did you ever look up and go, actually, where are all the older women? Where are the older black women? Exactly. At the time, you're just hustling and you're trying to do the best job that you can and you're trying to keep an eye out for maybe a a career progression. But that's a very sort of like um, personal thing. How do I move on? It's only when you take a step back and you look up and you realise not many people are moving on. Where is everyone? Where does everyone go? And if you thought that the day you start that job, you'd be terrified because you'd feel it was like, I don't know if you remember, um, um, it was a science fiction film from the 1970s and Logan's Run. So at the age of 30, they all go into this pod and they think they're going to this Nirvana. But actually what happens is everyone everyone gets destroyed, but they don't know it. And it would feel like sci-fi. It would feel like Logan's Run. What happens when people get... To a certain age. Well, I think a lot of
1: women feel like that in mm. their 40s and certainly yeah, absolutely. 50. I, mean, I remember when I was on Red and I i was one of those really mm. irritating people, a five year plan, and I always knew oh, reality. I, uh, yeah.
2: oh,
1: I never so had a five year plan. You no, know, I haven't got one anymore, and it was quite destabilizing, <laughs> I've got to say. But you look up and you kind of go, oh, yeah. all the older editors have vanished. Mm. And of course, into a certain extent, you need that because career progression, all of yep. that succession,
2: all of those things. But where is everybody? And actually, what does that mean for me? Yeah, I got to a stage where I was seeing the interns, who hadn't necessarily interned for me, but had interned at Earl. I was starting to see them become deputy editor somewhere or editor of something. And it gets to a point where you realise that things aren't maybe moving always as fast as you want them to be that sort of derails you because you think, well, where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? How come that person, how did that happen? And things start moving very quickly for other people. For me, this happened when I had children. I felt as if I, I know, took my sort of foot off the gas for a while, which you should do because you're trying to enjoy that experience. But then when you sort of go back to your job, you feel that you're sort of out of kilter. I... Found myself in a situation where I was just panicking with a job that I used to love and do so easily, trying just to make it all work. I was juggling three young children. They were at private school in South London. I was trying to make that happen with my husband, thinking at the same time that maybe we should be moving to this area for schools or maybe we should be doing that. And it was just all, it was like a bottleneck. It was all getting too much. And during this time, my parents in law were living in Norfolk. Even before getting married and having children, we used to go up for country weekends and stay at their house. And I remember sort of having this feeling of peace. Oh, we've just left London. Seeing the fields and lovely old houses and old farmyards and things. And it was a, a time when nobody really contacted you that much with um, the mobile phones. So you, you felt like if you got out of London, you were at peace and quiet. Those were the days. Those were the days. And that really resonated with me. I kept coming back to that, that idea of escape. I'm a born and bred Londoner, so you know, London has always been my home. But I knew that I couldn't find peace if I stayed where I was. There was always that threat of taking a step back and then looking at your neighbour and going, well, what, what are they doing and, and how are they doing that? And, you know, I'm out of sight, out of mind. I need to take myself out of a situation in order to sort of find peace. Like London created a comparison oh, culture completely. thing that you couldn't pick. completely. And yeah. I didn't realise I was that person actually it sort of like crept up on me it's not so much of a they've got that so I must have that it's more am I doing the right thing by my children am I doing the right thing being here should we have moved is that a better choice you start christening your choices and the minute that happens you start getting undermined everything you do starts getting undermined it was a lot of noise and nothing was making me happy and I wasn't seeing my children as much as I wanted to and I wasn't being a very nice partner (laughs) you know (laughs) I was (laughs) (laughs) you know and I knew it was because I just wasn't able to juggle anymore. And we had to do something very drastic to change the situation. And my husband continued working in London, even when we moved. Something had to give. And, you know, it was me and I was happy to be the person who basically gave up their career. We even sort of thought about France. And I thought about going to the Caribbean because my parents are from Grenada in the West Indies. Mm. But we knew that we couldn't start totally afresh. And, you know, Norfolk is only it's 110 miles up there. It's not, it's not yeah. that far. So my husband was able to come and commute yeah, and sort of freelance. and. You were you worried at all about the fact
1: that you lived in a really multicultural urban community and you were moving to a place where
2: it wasn't? The day my children started school, they went to a tiny village school of 90 children across all of the age groups, you know, say from five to 11. Mm. And um, they walked in. And of course, it's a sea of white faces. And then there are these, um, you know, mixed race children, these brown children. And um, they were fine. They were absolutely fine. I was slightly worried on their behalf, because I didn't want any name calling or anything. You you don't know what you're going to encounter. As it happened, it was lovely and it was fine. And my fears sort of disappeared very quickly and people were very friendly and it was lovely and it was very early on I knew it was the right decision. I don't ever worry about that sort of thing for me. But of course, you you know, you've got your mama bear thing for your children and you do worry and, you know, even the silliest names can hurt, obviously. And I'd experienced a bit of racism growing up. But my parents did similar things when I was young. They moved to areas that weren't necessarily very multicultural. I was born in Croydon, which is very multicultural, but we moved moved out and then further out and further out. You know, it wasn't a pattern that I intended to repeat, but I knew that I survived it. So I guessed that hopefully my children would be okay. But yes, it was a massive change. I mean, they were in a lovely school in West Dulwich that was very multicultural Mm. um, and a lot bigger, you know, and um, and a lot noisier and vibrant. And I just wanted them to have a slowed-down childhood, and I wanted me to be there to experience it. It was the way I thought that they would experience it. And they have, and they've had a great time I mean my goodness they probably will say that they were traumatised by moving yeah. <laughs> but from what I know they will do they, at some point yeah. at some point they'll blame me you know, they did seem to have a lovely childhood my twin girls are 17 now nearly 18 and my son is 20 so apparently they're okay at the moment <laughs> we lived in Streatham in South London we had a cinema at the end of the road we had a Kentucky Fried Chicken at the end of the road we had cafes and this that and the other and there was going to come a point when they were going to have a really good social life by just walking to the end of the road so we moved when my girls were five and my son was um, seven before they realized what we'd done what we'd taken them away from so when they moved and when they went to the school it was just another great adventure they didn't know what they were missing and the timing was important too so you moved about what was that 12 15 years ago 2010
1: so you went from this like crazy outwardly glamorous Mm. life Mm. salary Mm, yeah absolutely you know being someone yes To living, I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere and get loads of hate, but comparatively, not having
2: your own income. I know you had the household income, but my goodness, it's not the same as having money going into your own bank. And I've worked since I was 12. I started with the paper round and then I went on to have Saturday jobs and I've always, always had my own money. So that was a massive thing for me. I've always been very independent. And the funny thing is, is that we didn't discuss it hugely. As I say, I'm a planner for other people, but I'm not a great planner for myself. And I did have these sort of vague ideas of maybe opening an interior store online, because at that time, things had just started happening online, and people were just having their online stores. But I didn't do a business plan. I didn't organise anything. I didn't have any savings, particularly, you know, all our money went into the into the house into doing the big move. So I don't know what I thought I was going to do. (laughs) Does anybody looks at your Hill House Vintage Instagram
1: now, We'll just see a palatial kind of mansion (laughs) in the Norfolk countryside. Or not a mansion, but a pretty lovely Georgian house in the countryside. But when you
2: bought it... When we bought it, we couldn't furnish it. We'd spent all our money doing the move. And we found ourselves in this seemingly idyllic situation that we couldn't move to the next step. Everything that you see now has taken nearly 12 years. It's Mm. like when somebody
1: hits the top of the bestseller list and they're an overnight sensation Mm. and it's their 10th book. Yeah, exactly. Nobody looking at your enviously at your Instagram yeah. now and getting comparison yeah. envy is going to go, oh, yeah, but she was exactly. doing that 12 years I mean, ago.
2: I mean, I literally, there were times when, you know, as long as we could pay the mortgage and pay the bills, we were happy. But there was no money, no excess to sort of like buy fancy sofas and fancy furnitures. And that's where Hill House Vintage came from. I think a lot of people think it's just because I have a slightly vintage aesthetic in terms of how I dress. But the vintage came from I had to buy secondhand vintage old furniture. That was it. And then I started trading things on eBay and sort of going to car boot sales. And I started having real fun furnishing the house. I got um, a lovely um, sort of drop down Chesterfield sofa for 99p once. I love the fact that my house is full of bargains. So anyone who's looked at my photos will see this round dining table. That was £40 on eBay. But people think it's some antique. And I do try and make it clear that my house is not filled with precious antiques. There are a few handed down things that are more precious to us. I don't live a fancy life in that way. But I try and make everything beautiful. And I think sometimes that overlaps and people assume that that means it must be very fancy and very sort of expensive. You know, I do love my clothes. I still love my clothes obviously but most of the furniture and most of what you see I found ways to make it look lovely to me you know hopefully lovely to other people by not being as extravagant as perhaps people think and it means a lot to me to actually keep that going as well you know most of my furniture or anything that I buy it's only a few pieces that are actually new things there's sofas that are new now but most of the tables and chairs and anything else that you see the beds and things are often sort of like older pieces that I've sort of found and cobbled together but I love that look I just love that whole jumbled Look, I think that whole layered sort of historical, it just looks like an old country house. I love that feeling. So the idea of having everything matchy-matchy and brand new and taken from the pages of a a shop magazine or something and put straight into my house is just wrong for me anyway. You know, everyone to their own. I have nothing against doing that. You know, if that's how you want to live, that's wonderful. And I'm I'm very nosy. I love looking at other people's style. But my style is very cobbled together and, you know, mismatched and, and worn from outside it doesn't look mismatched at all it looks really put together
1: but that's the look
2: yes i suppose so and it's i think um it's because i've got to a stage chair by (laughs) the way the chair I think because I'm 12 years on and the house is now filled to the rafters of stuff, you know, I'm a maximalist, I'll bring in another 10 vases and whatever. I think it perhaps looks put together and and done. But if you sort of like rewind to those early days of blogging and those early days of Instagram, the house looks a lot sparser because it's grown, it's evolved over time. You know, I call myself a slow decorator because nothing we've ever done has been quick. I I won't decide to revamp a room overnight and then have it you know, book the decorators in or whatever in two weeks' time. That's just not me. So I will spend five years finding the perfect lamp for a space. And maybe the reason it looks as if it's all together and done properly is because I spent so long finding the right thing. If I want a matching pair of lamps and I want to find them in a vintage store, I'll buy one that I love and I will wait six years to look for another one. So when you see it, you think, oh, they match. Like, it took six years for them to match.
1: I <laughs> uh, see, so you and I are completely the opposite. I mean, I would never, like, buy a whole look and put it mm. in. But if, I, if I'm if i deciding I'm going to do something, then I spend, like, days and days and yeah. days and days looking for a lamp. But I will find a lamp rather than go, well, yeah. I'll just... I think what you do is sensible. And it's the right thing. <laughs> but I
2: just, like, you know, I'll lose interest. And I get a bit obsessed with it. Got to do it now. No, I mean, I don't think either way is right. I'm probably very infuriating to live with because there will be a lack of a allow- lamp on that table or that bedside <laughs> and, yes, you know, true, yeah. and the family will go well can we have a lamp it's like no, no not until not we find yet, the right <laughs> <we> find <laughs> the, perfect, yeah, the lamp. perfect lamp I find it's so enjoyable to then discover that perfect lamp or to to spot something that is right for the house and when it has a history or when it's pre-loved or there's a story behind it I think that's even more exciting it's I, like Anna. the world yes. has finally caught up with you Hasn't it? When
1: you started doing it, it it was still a
2: bit. When I first moved to Norfolk, after settling the children in, after my husband was settled, I did go through a period of time thinking, right now, what? What do I do now? I wouldn't say I struggled, but it was more I did feel lost, and it was reflected in how I dressed and the fact I, you know, I I hid away. I didn't really want to go out a huge amount, and so now, sort of finding things and going vintage hunting, I do things now to bring me a lot of joy. You know, the smallest things can make me happy, and I appreciate it so much because I remember. those moments so I, what changed okay. what changed for you that took you from that I'm not sure who
1: I am now mm. to oh, okay this is what I'm doing and this is who I am now
2: what? for a long time you trade on the currency of your last job and I oh gosh I, I remember that I went to a wedding when I was quite young and I just started working at L. I think and um the mother of the bride said oh hello yes I know all about you you're Paula at Elle magazine I used to work at Vogue and she talked about how she worked at Vogue 40 years ago or something I remember after thinking oh, why was she telling me about her job at Vogue you know it was interesting but you know and I always remember that because when I moved to Hill House I became that woman who was what do you do what, do you, what are you doing oh I used to work at you know it, that hmm. became my mantra I used to work because I felt that people would get me they'd understand yeah. who I was because it was a he- here I was without a career without a job anymore I had to keep telling them and reminding people I, I used to do something. I used to be something. I used to. Mm. And the further that got away. So, you know, for the first few months, that's fine because you've just left. A year later, it's sort of, how do you keep saying that, you know? And yes. that's when I started sort of retreating into myself because I felt I had nothing to say. I didn't know what I was. What, what could I call myself if somebody said, what do you do? And... I think being a housewife is a wonderful thing, but that's not who I thought I would be. Even though I stepped away from my career to be with the children, it was always with the intention of being something as well as the homemaker. I think being a homemaker is a wonderful thing, but I wanted something on top of that. I wanted another layer to my cake. I found myself without any other layers, and that was a very exposing... I love that you're using and, a cake analogy.
1: Um, cake, cake, so
2: on brand, Paul. <laughs> I just love a bit of cake. It's always in my mind, cake. I felt I had nothing else. At the same time, I was trying to furnish the house very cheaply with all of this vintage stuff, and I, d- I didn't connect the two things. I didn't think that that was who I could become or that's what I would be doing. So what happened is I started hiding away. You know, I didn't have any need for my high heels anymore. still don't anymore, really. But So, you know, I, I had this wonderful wardrobe full of clothes that I packed away, and I started wearing my husband's old jumpers and jackets and sort of, you know, Wellingtons became my shoe of choice and I just became hidden. I would do the dog walk. We've got the dog. I would go on the dog walk hoping not to see anybody but on the side I had this sort of like blogging life where I was looking at other people's blogs and seeing what they were doing and I was getting energy from that and really enjoying seeing this um, vintage loving community actually this sort of like and people who would sort of um, do DIY bits and things because that was important to me because I needed to know how to do things myself so that side of my interest grew in terms of sort of like loving the idea that people were doing bits of their house and DIY and buying vintage but from a personal point of view I stayed hidden one day I put on a bit of lipstick. I mean, it just—it sounds so silly, like some sort of um, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. That I put on lipstick and suddenly my world was transformed. But I put on lipstick, and I remember feeling, oh, I feel quite nice. I feel quite nice with my red lipstick on, and I remembered that gosh I used to dress up all the time, didn't I? I to, going to work used to be about dressing up and feeling mm. fabulous. You didn't have to do that. It just made me happy. So from putting on a bit of lipstick I sort of decided to take off my hat. I used to wear a hat the whole time, an old trilby the whole time. When I think of how I covered myself up and hid and wanted to make myself small, then you look I'd at what I do to now. Did you see a picture of that? Have you got any? I probably have. But that's another thing. I didn't have my i I didn't let my photo be taken. Well that was something that has changed a lot recently, yeah, hasn't yes, it? Yes yeah oh, absolutely I would love to take Take photos and I would use that as an excuse to not be in them yeah. but I'd be the photo take mm-hmm. and it wasn't so much that I didn't like my self-image it wasn't that oh my goodness I think I'm unattractive I just felt I was disappearing I had nothing to give and there was nothing particularly interesting about me so anyway I put my lipstick on and then with the lipstick I, I remember buying a different shade of Wellington boots that's how Glamorous it was back in those days. Red Perth boots and then. Love a welly. I I love a welly. And um, I started sort of putting the layers back on a little bit and it started slowly. And I realised that dressing up and actually doing things that didn't mean I was hiding and being seen actually made me happy. And I had to rediscover that. I had to go through a bit of a miserable Mm. period to find out that hiding and disappearing wasn't actually bringing me a hell of a lot of joy, you know. It's so interesting because I think so
1: many people, predominantly women, Mm. will identify with that. Mm. Whether it's like post-babies or, Mm. you know, in a kind of a perimenopausal phase Mm. of like losing that identity. Absolutely. Self-identity and having to put it back absolutely
2: i don't know what it was that triggered that made me do it because if we had to go to an event like a a wedding or or, or birthday i would put it all back on and i would have a wonderful time for that particular day then i'd sort of like you know take off the layers again it's like you didn't deserve it for yourself yes exactly exactly so yeah so that the layer started coming back on, I realised that my mood was shifting upwards. And I remember I'd started writing, doing the blog and I started doing Instagram, but the Instagram was all about showing my vintage finds and showing what I'd done in the house and showing a a lovely rose that had come up in the garden. And um, I remember showing myself on my birthday and just saying, hi, this is me and then sort of hiding. People love that though. Who knew?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who knew? Because you know you like looking at other people. Yes,
2: exactly. I love don't... looking at other people yeah. behind the account. No, I think I hate it's so... having my photo taken as well. Oh, you know, and I really did hate having my photo taken. It's not a pretend, I always secretly liked it. I used to hate it. So when I showed myself on my birthday and people were like, oh, it's so wonderful to see you. And also, I remember showing myself to dispel any idea of what I looked like and who I was because I realised That I had this image with the house and with the old furnishings and the gardening that I probably was an older, most likely to be white lady and I wanted to dispel that idea and I was getting, not alluding to that fact but sort of I could tell people were assuming I was something that I wasn't and so I showed myself to actually show that I was a black woman living Mm. in this house and living in the middle of the countryside and it sort of grew from there. When you show yourself you get more used to showing yourself and when you're being seen you get more used to being seen. So it started off with birthdays and then the occasional me in front of a country house or something and then I remember one Easter about three years ago I think it was We were in front of um, an old sort of like country house near us and I was in a red dress and I felt great in my red dress and my my red lipstick. And I said to my husband, I'm going to jump and do a ballerina pose. I've never done ballet. (laughs) I'm just really happy. And I did this Jump and he captured it brilliantly. I mean, literally. And I'd never done anything like that. Didn't think I was bold enough to post that on social media. But I remember feeling particularly happy at that point. And I just thought, whatever, I don't care. I don't care if people don't like this. Also, I just think it's a really nice picture. I love the fact that it's sort of symmetrical. I'm into my symmetry. Yes, yeah. And people loved it because it showed joyfulness and it was refreshing in that way. And I get this in my sort of DMs and in my comments. So many people want to see joy and happiness and. Mm. It was making me happy, showing I'd come out of this dark place and I was was happier. And um, it became like a public service. You know, so many women in particular were so happy to see happiness and they were, you know, feeling very emotional that they were seeing a woman of a certain age as well and having a fun time because social media had been so filled with gorgeous wonderful skinny white women exactly skinny white women. yeah which is great but you need to
1: see other things don't you you need to see see more had you ever because you haven't mentioned that at all and in fact you don't Mm. there is a little bit in the book but not Mm. much you worked in the fashion industry for 20 years Mm. had you
2: felt that lack of representation in my 20s I towed the line you know you do your job because you're thinking of your career and we were taught that that was like put up or
1: shut up because you're lucky to be here
2: exactly if you don't do it someone else will absolutely Yeah. those days they had interns that they weren't paying anyone I mean now you can't do that you can't have free labour but you had so many people lining up to get those jobs even though they weren't even being paid so I mean that showed how eager and hungry people are and were but one of the things that used to really hit me was the idea that black faces didn't sell a magazine that used to be one one of the most frustrating things yeah as the black woman
1: organizing the shoot yeah
2: exactly was anybody
1: embarrassed when they said that to you?
2: Well, that was always in the big editorial meetings. It was yeah. never sort of like said in such blatant yeah. terms, but uh-huh. it was one of those things to that be you would absolutely transparent. Yeah. I am sure that I have said that mm. in a cover meeting. I've it was... been told that by my bosses for sure. It was definitely one of those things that was assumed and I've even seen it in very old interviews from very high up people at certain magazines, let's say in America, that it's um it's not our fault, you know, it's all about sales. We have to sell the magazine otherwise we're out of a job. So and this doesn't sell. And that became something that just happens and that's the norm. So yes, it was frustrating. The the good thing about editorial fashion is that black models were often very successful, you know, because it was a beautiful aesthetic, but then it's more for the art as opposed to doing anything that's meant to be helping, you know, anything. So... It was all a bit warped. It was all a bit twisted. And as a young person, you're there trying to keep your job and trying to do the best you can, trying to be liked, trying to be wanted, needed, trying to get your promotion. You know, gosh, there's a lot I'd say now if I was back in that position. But, um, you know, at the time, there was a lot of head down, which is which is terribly sad. It's very sad. I know a lot of much younger women now have
1: certainly said to me around the time of the Me Too movement, mm. well, why did you put up with it? Mm. And it's hard to explain
2: if you weren't there oh, it's the different cultures and who had the power. Yeah, I mean, it is very hard to explain. And the thing is, is I always felt that I was a strong character and a strong woman and so when you're not fighting for something and especially around like the me too situations there are many situations where you think but I'm in control so it's okay so I could handle that and now you know at my age now I think well if that happened to my daughter it's not about anyone being able to handle it it's about certain things shouldn't happen you hmm. shouldn't have to certain, yeah, exactly you should not have to regardless of whether you can that's not the point you know yeah things have changed a lot thank, thank goodness yeah. thank goodness because um yeah it is a different world there's lots of mountains yeah. still climb, but it's a different world, for sure. You know, it was your birthday yesterday, you're mm. 52, Happy your yeah.
1: birthday. Thank you very much. Um, as a black woman in her early 50s, mm. one with nearly half a million followers mm. on Instagram,
2: uh. which I'd like to talk about in a second, <laughs> do you feel represented now? I'm beginning to feel represented through social media, especially from America, actually. There are a lot of wonderful, articulate, intelligent, vibrant, strong black women of a certain age. A oh, lot yeah. of them are American. I mean, there's lots of us out there. I'm beginning to see it in England, but it's only happening recently. You know, in the last, if I'm honest, sort of 18 months on a scale where it's becoming mm. normal. These women have obviously been there the whole time, but on a scale where people are taking a, a larger interest as opposed to just their own demographic. You know, thank God it's happening. I do think that it's another reason why I show myself as much as I do. I think it's important that I show myself a lot. I think it's important that I'm so happy with how old I am. I think it's important I keep telling people how old I am. I have no fear. I'm looking forward to growing older, you know, as long as my legs keep carrying yes, me. Is, exactly. You know, I love it. I have no issue with that side of things, but I also think it's very important that I'm seen as an older black woman. You know, I'm, I'm not the oldest black woman. I'm only 52. But yes, it's very important. It's very important.
1: Things have really taken off for you, actually, in slightly weird ways in your 50s, mm. haven't they? I mean, I mentioned just now that you had half a million mm. Instagram followers. But until about 18 months ago, you had mm. 100,000, which is still not to be sniffed mm. at. I've got to say. And then the visibility that mm. you'd started to claim for mm. yourself. It kind of weirdly had a backlash and then lashed back. Yes. You know I mean, can you yes. tell the. Yes. About it, that?
2: it was a very interesting situation, actually. I, I have to sort of rewind a couple of months. My mother was dying of leukemia. It was a very quick illness. It came out of nowhere, and then suddenly, within three months, she had died. I had just come back from the Caribbean where we'd buried her, literally the week or two weeks before lockdown. You know, I didn't see lockdown coming. Mm. You come back, and someone says, oh, there's no loo roll. Unbelievable. And um, I remember arriving back and the airport was deserted and I was thinking, my goodness, this is really strange. So um, I came back and I was just teaching on 100,000 followers and I thought, this is wonderful life. You know, people are so lovely and I'd built up this community. And, you know, of course, I didn't know all 100,000 of them, but I would felt it was controllable and I knew the sort of person who was following me and I knew the sort of thing that they wanted. And um, then lockdown happened and I was mourning the loss of my mother. I remember knowing that my mother would say stop being miserable and stop crying and just get out there and smile and, you know, show a bit of joy or whatever. So I went into this mode of creating these images and creating pictures and baking cakes because it was my coping thing. And, you know, I come from a magazine background. I love creating beautiful images. So well, I wasn't thinking about how it looked to be in this awful situation of lockdown where I looked like I was having the best time of my life. I was creating lovely pictures. That's what I thought I was doing, you know, rallying spirit. And there were Comments, people saying, yes, keep showing, you know, lovely flowers and all this, and keep making us laugh and keep making us feel happy because it's a really miserable time around the world. And so I was doing that. And then there was a tweet and somebody said, she was a young journalist, today is the day I closed my Instagram account, and this is the image why. And it was an image of me on the lawn. It's actually on the cover of the book, actually. (laughs) With a picnic surrounding me, reading a book with a big hat on, and you can't see my face, and with the house behind me. Images like that, as I say, I love creating the images. You're
1: creating an image.
2: And I love Tim Walker, and I love photographers, and I love fashion photography. I love fashion photography of the 1950s and the 1940s. It's my my passion. I love all of that. So a lot of the things I do is, with that in mind, I'm thinking of old Hollywood and I'm thinking of old-fashioned photography and I'm thinking of, you know, fashion models from the 1950s with an elephant behind oh them yes, doing... That the, yes, yes. That. I love all of that and I'm obsessed with all of that sort of imagery. So a lot of what I do is very tongue-in-cheek, playing up to that, you mm. know. And um, it hadn't occurred to me that what I was doing, because I was in my own house, in my own garden, this is what I've always done, it hadn't occurred to me that somebody might look at that and go, how insensitive, why is she showing herself in the garden? I never saw it as showing up. Off. and I think that's what mm. this particular person perceived it as and it totally threw me I, I just
1: didn't see it coming. Her tweet was also perceived as racist wasn't it as her it, saying yeah. you
2: were a black woman so you shouldn't be in that. Why, why is she doing this? If I'm honest she contacted me afterwards and apologised and explained where she was coming from. She didn't try to legitimise it. She was completely devastated and, you know, horror-struck that, you know, the situation had occurred. But she said, I'm stuck in a flat in London and um, I'm depressed. I'm just angry with the world. And unfortunately, I'm really sorry I took it out on you. You know, I was looking at image after image of social media influencers acting as if nothing was happening in the world. And your image, unfortunately, was within that. And it was just the final straw. And um, she hadn't looked at me or who I was. She'd never looked at my account before. I know it sounds hard to believe, but it hadn't been about me being black for her. Unfortunately, you shouldn't pick on anyone. You shouldn't pick on nobody deserves to be told your image is why I've given up something and on a public platform. So she had other people joining in going, oh, my goodness, and calling me you know, a C word and all, all sorts of things oh
1: my God, you but
2: they life... weren't necessarily speaking about me they were talking about influencers what they saw as influencers yeah. at the time I didn't see myself as an influencer anyway I was just taking photos you know yeah. <laughs> here's me here's me with flowers here's me having a picnic here's me you know yeah. here's me with my dog but unfortunately what happened for her is that it was picked up on because there were people who followed me on Instagram who saw it and said why are you picking on a 50 year old black woman of all the influencers if you see her as an influencer of all the influencers and of all the people selling all sorts of nonsense stuff
1: of all the people you could appear why
2: are you picking on a woman of a certain age and of a certain colour and that's how it Mm. just went crazy because a lot of people came out in support of one you shouldn't pick on anyone but also why that is an example why is that the example you use my account I remember coming home from shopping and I looked at my Instagram account and it had gone up by a few thousand I thought oh gosh and often when you get a lot of followers somebody's mentioned you so then well they had and (laughs) then I I continued putting shopping away and I realised that it had gone up by 10,000 then 15,000 and then 20,000 and then what started off as um, oh isn't this exciting and lovely started turning into something's wrong here I thought, oh, has Oprah Winfrey (laughs) mentioned me? You know, is there somebody really super famous who's mentioned me? My goodness, what what is this? And then as it started to keep, going up. And it wasn't creeping up. It was just, you know, I'd blink and it was 10,000 more people. It started getting scary. I knew something must be out there. And I didn't know what it was. You have no control over what people's reading about you. I had no idea what I'd done. And in your mind, you're thinking, what have I done wrong? It didn't feel positive. It felt like, goodness me, am I caught up in some sort of politician sex scandal? (laughs) (laughs) What's gone on? I had no idea what it was. And then somebody actually contacted me and said, you know, you're probably wondering what's happened. And um, you are trending on Twitter, and we're all behind you. And they were calling me Auntie Paula. We're all behind you, Auntie Paula. And I had this whole sort of army of people who were coming out in support of me. And I grew about 300,000 followers over the space of a few days. Nuts. And it was terrifying. And it made me wonder if I should be hiding again. Mm. You know, this is what you get if you show yourself. All those emotions went through me. Oh my goodness. You show yourself on social media, but you show yourself believing you can control it. At 100,000, it's a lot of people, but I felt in control. Mm. You know, I was giving what I wanted to give. Suddenly I was having people asking me questions, you know, they wanted to know who my husband was and what my children looked like. And there were lots of questions about intimate things. I mean, I I hardly show as much as people think on on Instagram. No, you don't you. It's, it's curated. Yeah. You know, it's very much I show what I want to show. So this felt very exposing. But my goodness, it was also after I got used to it. It's so lovely. I mean, having all of those people come out in support of you was incredible. And I am very grateful, very thankful. And it's been amazing. It's actually changed my life, for sure. I'd already, at that stage, this had become a career. Now it's a, my goodness, there's no question mark there now. This is my life and my career. And I'm loving Every minute of it, it's wonderful. I had to catch up with a bit feeling comfortable with it. You know, mm. there was a while when it was making me very anxious and making me think. You know, be careful of what you wish for. But I've caught up with that now. <laughs> yeah. It's lovely now. It's wonderful. You've embraced it, and um, I have amazing battalion of people following me and being very kind and very supportive and enjoying what I do and also understanding what I do which is very tongue-in-cheek I'm having fun, I want everyone to have fun, I want people to be part of that fun, you know, everyone's invited to to this party, you know, that's what it's all about. It's about people being happy because I know what it's like to not feel happy and not know how to get out of that. I'm just trying to make people smile and every time I get a comment from someone saying you made me really happy, I had miserable news this morning or I wasn't feeling happy or I wasn't doing this or this situation's happened and you know, I saw you tap dancing and you made me laugh and I love it and thank you. That's why I make such a damn fool of myself on social media <laughs> <laughs> it's like it liberated you to, oh completely yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely and um also age has liberated me getting older I can't stress enough how I enjoy the aging process because I care less every single year and I used to care a lot and I'm so sad for that person who used to care and worry so much about what other people thought about whether I should be doing this that or the other and now I'm there jazz hands and whatever and enjoying my own little world trying to make other people happy and trying to do what makes you happy you've got to life is too short you know there's too many awful things as we all know going on it's not um irresponsible you're not blind by trying to seek out happiness. You know, you can see everything else that's going on and you can acknowledge and be compassionate and support causes and you can do everything and still show happiness. You owe it to yourself. You know, I do believe fake it till you make it. You know, you give out the outward um, sort of signs of happiness and you, you know, put your dress on, put your best frock on, do the gardening in the dress and have your lipstick on. It does make you feel a bit more uplifted. It might not work for everybody. I, I understand that, but it works for me and I think it does work for a lot of people. It's so. brilliant. I've got a few questions that I always ask. Mm. At the end, um, what's your emotional age? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? What's my emotional age? I think I am stuck at 30. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my energy back. Not so much my physical energy, actually, because I mean, I've got arthritis and I'm not, you know, physically, I'm not top notch.
1: Mm.
2: But mentally, I've got my energy back. I want to do stuff and I want to explore things and I want to, you know, I'm feeling very happy and very good. And I I just remember when I was sort of in my late 20s, that was a very exciting time. I feel that's where I am again. That's brilliant. In my mind. Give us a book recommendation. I think at the moment, sort of Candice, sister, sister, Candice Bathwait, she's, gosh, I get so much joy from her account but also she is so vibrant and she's a lot younger than me and I think she's sort of so emotionally intelligent and so perceptive. I would definitely say that bakery cookbook by Mary Berry. (laughs) 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 To go full spectrum. Either end, depending on what mood you're in. Back to cakes. yeah exactly. Exactly.
1: Um you've kind of already done this I think, but what one piece of advice would you give younger women? Don't fear
2: Getting older. Getting older can be a beautiful, wonderful thing. You can reimagine yourself and you can become anything you want to be. And I'm not talking about in your career, but just the person that you want to be. And it's an exciting thing. It can be very exciting. So don't fear getting older. But also... um, Don't be too serious. Enjoy life as well. And we all have challenges. I mean, my goodness, probably your 20s and 30s are very challenging times because you're trying to establish where you are in in the world. But take time to make yourself happy and to seek out things that make you happy. What's your superpower? Making people smile. (laughs) I hope. I think I could have answered <laughs> that one for you. <laughs> Who is your old bird role model? I'm going to go back to sort of my love of film and my love of things like that. And um, it's probably a cross between Josephine Baker and Audrey Hepburn. And they're very similar in the sense that they were both had their very glamorous time. They both adore animals. And both made people happy for a living, but were also very caring and very compassionate. That's
1: nice. I
2: think you're on the way. (laughs) Um, And lastly, how many fucks do you give? Zero. You can't. I will always have people who think that what I do is very sort of useless and, you know, what the hell am I doing? Go and get a proper job, go and do, you know. And I couldn't care less because it's making some people happy. It's making me happy. And that's what matters. You, You know, bring a bit of happiness into the world. and Who cares? Who cares?
1: That's brilliant. Thank you, Paula. And you're still looking all glamorous and I am a bit less sweaty than I was when I got here. I'm flushing along with you, don't worry. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.
0: Hold up.